This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everyone. Wow, did this year go by fast or what? Between rehabbing injured birds, teaching wildlife rehabilitation, and putting this podcast together, it sure has been busy. We've got some new developments in the works for Bird Hugger, just in time for the new year, and I'll be able to explain it all very soon. Today should be an interesting show. I am speaking with award-winning author Derek Gao, who has just written a new book called Birds, Beasts, and Bedlam. Renowned for his outspokenness, Derek is going to share some of his adventures with us in rewilding the British countryside. And now I'd like to introduce Derek Gow to the show. Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem, Catherine. Good to have a chat. Congratulations on your wonderful new book. For our listeners, Derek has written the book Birds, Beasts, and Bedlam, Turning My Farm into an Ark for Lost Species. I have to say it was a wonderful read. I was either laughing out loud or I was hopping mad as I was reading the book. (laughs) (laughs) It may be what you were aiming for in writing the book. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's meant to evoke emotions. I'm finishing a third book on the history of the wolf in the British Isles, and I was just having a chat with one of my excellent guides from Chelsea Green about what this should be about. And they said, well, Derek, if you just basically give people a list of dates and information, it's going to be read by nobody. And the whole point of some of these things is that you cannot make them dry. They have to be colourful tales and they have to be things that engage and interest people. Otherwise, there's no point in telling the story at all. So I'm glad you felt that way about the Birds and Beasts book. That's very kind. Yes, I really enjoyed it. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of issues. Now, the approach of your book, if I'm correct, is... We're long past the research phase of the effects that changes on the earth are having on our wildlife. And then it's time for recovery. In fact, it's way past time for recovery. And I think each of your stories seems to say, here's what recovery actually looks like. And let's get started, folks. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I mean, you look at that in conjunction with the first book about beavers, you know, we live in a time where we understand many of the solutions. We know what needs to be done. And, you know, there are many people who absolutely support the idea of acting fast. And yet when it comes to lobby groups and politicians and, and, and you know, actually nature conservationists themselves, you know, who are worried about their careers and worried about their balance sheets and worried about what their bosses will think of them. It's that kind of thinking that basically just stops things happening fast. And if you want a wonderful parallel, I don't know if you, you watch Leonardo DiCaprio's film, you know, about not looking up. And you look at that and you think, my God, that's where we are. We're living through this great time of extinction 
and habitat loss and changing climate and, and the world altering itself because of us in a way that we never thought I think most of us would see in our lifetimes. And at a time like this, we should be looking quite seriously that we are and saying, right, okay, what can we do to make this just a little bit better? And yet, you know, all the same barriers emerge and tell you, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's too swift. It's too urgent. What we've got to do is sit down and study, you know, the, the anatomy of its lower colon for another six years before we can make any decision about anything. And that's just no good at all. Right. The time for delay is over, I would say. Yeah, that absolutely is. It was over a long time ago, right. and we need to move very fast indeed. Now, tell us just a little bit, just so our listeners have some background on you. You're a former farmer turned rewilder. Now, how did that happen? Okay, so I was born in the Scottish Borders near a tiny town called Bigger, which is a very pretty place in, you know, very near to the kind of rolling green hills of the, the Cheviots and the Lammermuirs in the land between England and Scotland. I worked in agriculture when I was young. I didn't go into university. I got an apprenticeship as a, a livestock auctioneer and I worked in, I valued farms and valued forestry and did that sort of work when I was little. And I'd always been very interested in nature conservation, but I never thought it was something I would ever be able to do. I'd read all Gerald Durrell's books and, and Aldo Leopold's books when I was very small. And you think, you know, what a wonderful way to live a life, but you don't think it's going to be for you. But because I'd been involved with the conservation of rare kind of cultural breeds of cattle and sheep that were found on the Western Isles of Scotland and left there by the Norsemen or the, or the you know, Neolithic settlers... When my job in agriculture finished, I was employed in a country park. And at the first time in life, I was employed to educate people about environmental issues. There was a little zoo there. They asked me to take charge of that. And then they sent me to Gerald Durrell Zoo on Jersey at the Jersey Wildlife Preservation Trust to look at captive breeding endangered species from all over the world to return them to the, the living space when the world became a better place. And at that point in time, my life really changed. And it showed me that, you know, there was an urgent need to be looking at this kind of work in Britain, as there is in North America, you know, with black-footed ferrets and, and whooping cranes and all sorts of miraculous species that you guys have worked with there to such great effect. And that's what gradually over years I began to do. And I suppose from that beginning, eventually when I could, I bought the farms here. Again, eventually when I could, I started to change their use and function in a landscape that is still completely farmed around me. And where very little other life can possibly find a foothold to say, well, actually, that's not the way it's going to be here. You see this land, it's going to have wetlands and it's going to have south facing banks where tiny jewel wasps can create their burrows and, and nesting spots for wonderful little you know, orange breasted birds like stone chats and wheat ears and room for the snakes and room for the deer at night. And that's what I decided to do. Well, that's wonderful. So there's a section in your book I absolutely loved, which was about the white stork. Could you talk about Storkgate for a moment? <laughs> okay, well, so Storkgate was quite an interesting project. When you look at the history, I mean, Britain is an island which has been completely dominated by people since the last Ice Age. So that's basically 12,000 years of near complete human domination. Even if you said, well, we were hunter-gatherers, we had a significant effect. And, and things like the last of the woolly rhinos that were here when the water rose between us and continental Europe, well, we finished them off very fast. So 
if you want a vision for the future, I mean, I, I don't know North America well, but for years I've come to Beaver conferences in both Boston and in Oregon, and I've enjoyed my travels around your wonderful landscape every time we ever came. But when you meet many of the biologists we meet at the Beaver conferences, they'll tell you how terribly worried we are about the state of your environment now. Shocking it is that you know such a species has been treated in, in this way or that way. And then you look at the landscape around those that are speaking in North America, and although they are fewer in number, you still have wolves, you still have grizzly bears, you still have the most miraculously assembly of creatures that finished here somewhere in the region of 6,000 years before the birth of Christ, maybe as far as bears are concerned. Certainly the wild cattle finished at that time, and probably the moose followed not long after. Maybe the wolves survived into the mid-1700s, but we did them down. So the point of it is that we have largely destroyed everything. We've taken the wetlands, we've taken the shifting sand dune systems, the thermal springs, all the things that were once here. We have mastered, destroyed, and removed. So when it comes to the evidence of creatures that existed in Britain, yes, there are legends, yes, there are, are medieval carvings, yes, there are maybe odd mentions in a script where somebody who was intelligent and could recognize a stork and tell the difference between this big bill clattering red-beaked bird and a chicken, you know, said they were nesting on the top of St. Giles Cathedral in 1416. But for most people who were illiterate and who couldn't write, the fact that it was a stork with a, a red beak or a hern with a yellow one or a crane with a, a great red neck nape, they wouldn't have been able to tell the difference at all. It was just food, it was a resource, and you were going to kill it and eat it. So when it comes to the history of storks in Britain, it was pretty grainy. There are some bones, there are references, there are medieval illustrations. But to be quite frank, you know, we believe they were here. We believe they were a bird that was that we know that they're a very trusting bird, that they'll live right alongside people, they'll nest in the roofs of people's houses. And there's a wonderful old name of a place called Storrington, which is in a place called Sussex in the centre of Lower England, just not far off the English Channel. And a thousand years ago, it was called a Storkston. And for anybody who's ever been to continental Europe and seen the aggregations of these gaudy birds and numbers nesting, you know, on the roofs of people's houses, on their chimneys, on their barns and their settlements, in the, you know, coming and going, feeding their chicks, the pastiche is just amazing. So the fact that the thing was called a thousand storks in a thousand years ago shows you how remarkable that must have been. Anyway, the long and short of it is the evidence is grainy. We live in a time of tremendous destruction where even the organisms in the soil are dying because of intensive agriculture, because of pesticides, because of chemicals. And what a number of us wanted to do was say, well, I'll tell you, we're going to do something really dynamic. We're going to reintroduce the white stork to Britain. It's going to be a bird of good omen. It always has been associated by people with good luck, regeneration, renewal. And we're going to have this bird there to get a conversation started about what this landscape should be about. Should it all be for chemical farming, but everything dies? Or should it be an environment where some fine creatures live as well and where we can recreate wildlife spectacles? And that's why we wanted to reintroduce the white stork, was to re-establish re it in Britain as a breeding bird, as a symbol of hope. And you would think that was quite simple and without contention. Well, what happens is that we speak to the nature of the licensing authorities from government and they can't decide what to do. And in the end, they tell us to get on with it. We speak to a variety of different people who are important and they say, this is a really good idea. You do it. 
And then we speak to some of the wee small nature conservation organisations that are the guys that might actually help. And before you know where they are, you are, they don't know what to make of it. They've never thought of anything like this before. It's so unconventional that it really alarms them. And they basically decide that they're not sure. And then once they decide they're not sure, they try and find a way to stop it. But because it was an independent project with independent finance, there wasn't really anything they could do. They advised us not to do it. They told us that it was not the sort of thing they wanted to see, that the birds would not live, that they would not be able to cross the English Channel, that the climate was too wet for them. A whole range of different reasons that were all made up for saying no. And then in the end, when we'd listened to them for long enough, we just said, well, thank you very much for your opinion. And we went ahead and did it. We imported the birds from Poland approximately in 2016, 2017. The birds took a year or two to establish in some of the estates where they were held. But now in Sussex, there are um, at the Neb Castle estate, I think somewhere in the region of about 20 um, young storks were born this year. They are flying the length and breadth of Britain. Some of them have gone as far down as Africa, and though yet they have, as time of, of speaking, they have not yet come back, they may very well still do so as they get older. And the response from people has been overwhelming. You know, tens of thousands of people have written to the owners of the estate to say what an inspiring project it was. You know, thousands and thousands have, have visited the estate to see the storks nesting in the old oak trees in the park. So the whole point of a storky is that, you know, you look around sometimes in life for friends and allies that you think you can rely on who are going to be sensible and sound. And before you know where you are, it's those friends and allies that you, you look to who actually respond in the most negative way. Whereas, you know, people in wider society are very supportive of the idea. Now, you talk about the great false idol of the industrial machine. Could you clue our listeners in to what you mean by that? Sure. We're living in a time when the sustainability of one of the greatest land uses, which is, of course, agriculture, has been completely hijacked by big companies who tell us we can do things that we do not know we can do. So if you looked, for example, at a farmer farming in the Iron Age in Britain, that man would be looking at the health of his soil. He'd be looking at returning you know, his own dung and the dung of his animals to the soil to ensure it was well nourished. There would be no chemicals in the soil. There would be an abundance of life there, drawing the goodness down into the ground. And if you look at you know, some of the finest writers in North America on just this subject of sustainable agriculture and people like Gabe Brown, he'd be farming in the same sort of way that that man is advocating now. If you look at how people farmed in, in Roman times, if you look at how people farmed right up to the time of the First World War and well beyond, the farming systems would be the same. They weren't natural environments, but they were environments that in their own right were very rich in a whole variety of different creatures that adapted to live alongside us when those environments were functioning. Then the Second World War comes. And with the Second World War come a whole range of companies who basically design chemicals initially to kill people. And then when the war is over, they design chemicals that, that have to have a function in some other industrial setting. And your chemical agriculture begins at that point. And it is a truly horrific thing. As I said in the book, the farmers are good people. I mean, I've met a lot of good, good chaps in my life that you, you know, who you'd sit in the winter with alongside their oil or their, their wood burners and have nice chats about the horses they remembered and, and the dogs and the fine cattle they bred and showed in their lifetime. 
And then you look at where we are now, and now what you've got, you know, through much of the industrial world is you've got a system of agriculture that's driven by companies who want to sell you merchandise that nobody has, that there is no sound understanding of. So, you know, they'll tell you, they told us at the beginning that DDT was safe. You used to have representatives that went around farms in Britain saying, I'll tell you what, you know, glyphosate's, you know, a perfectly safe thing. You know, it attacks the, the systemic roots of weeds. It's very safe for anything else. And if you want to argue with me, I'll tell you what, I'll drink it. And they'd whip this white bottle out of their back pocket and drink it. And I was just saying to somebody the other day, I wonder where these representatives are now. Because if you talk to the guys that are looking at those kind of runoffs from those chemicals and assessing their impacts on fish, they will tell you they produce the most hideous cancers. You know, in countries like France, you've got studies that show that most adults are urinating glyphosate and that, you know, something like 70% of the kids that were studied, you know, have actually got neonicotinoids in the spinal fluid. As the end consumers of these vile toxins, we have no idea of what they're going to do to us. But what we do know is that they severely destroy and crucify the wider environments they're used on. And that's why. And yet, you know, the industries that tell us they're good, you know, worship their idol. They tell us it's all fine. They tell us it's all safe. And I fundamentally believe that to be untrue. Right. I couldn't agree more. Now, you talk in your book about the hard realities of rewilding. You know, it's a trend that here in the United States that I hope is going to take hold of returning native plants to the wild to attract native trees to help sustain the birds populations, which have taken a real beating. Could you talk about some of those hard realities of rewilding? And it's really not for the faint of heart, right? No, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, when you start to think rewilding, you can't go back. There may be changes in attitude that come along and are required. So, I mean, last week I was in, in, in Bavaria leading a wildlife study group. And in Bavaria now, in a landscape where the large predators, you know, like the wolf, were done to death in, in the late 1800s, these animals are back now breeding in tiny, tiny numbers, maybe only one or two packs in a country that's approximately the size of Scotland. But, you know, right the way through through Europe, some creatures from the past are coming back slowly, often reluctantly in a sense, because there are still sectors, sections of society that want to see them dead. But these creatures are returning to landscapes where they have not been for very many centuries. And there's great joy to be taken, I think, from that. Um, there are organisations that are returning some of the smaller creatures like the wildcats and the pine martens and the little fur-bearing carnivores that were all declared by the Elizabethans to be vermin. And they are coming too. You're seeing you know, some really great people reintroducing the big birds like the eagles, which were all gone from Britain when it comes to the white-tailed eagle by the time you get to the early 20th century. So rewilding involves the return of species or the toleration of species when they come back. In the past, we always, you know, burnt, snared and poisoned. But the other aspect of rewilding is that you start to look at land as being something that is not forever going to be held in thrall. I'm not quite sure how it works in the United States, but in Britain, because of the, our entry to the common agricultural policy through the European Union, Agriculture has been very heavily subsidised to the point where until relatively recently you would get money for just owning a sheep or owning a cow and it didn't matter whether that cow produced a calf 
All it meant was that you, Mr. Brown, the farmer, had a cow and the state came along and gave you 400 quid for owning one. It was a completely cracker system. And what we know now is that that produced very little. What it produced was habitat destruction on a significant scale to the point where, you know, I sit overlooking Dartmoor, if it was light at this point in time, which is an area somewhere in the region of 360 square miles. And there isn't a single breeding curlew left there or a single small wading bird like a lapwing because of the grazing density of domestic livestock is so harsh and there are so many insecticides in their blood and their dung. So rewilding is taking areas of land and just saying, you know, actually, it's enough. This area has been thrashed by us to the point where little other life you know, can survive. What we need to do is just shut that gate and say, that's it, you can heal. And maybe we put a few wild boar in to turn the soil over and aerate it and give it different structures and create pools and wallows that dragonflies and amphibians can use. Maybe we reintroduce the marble as the beaver to fell the trees and the steam at its end and create the pools that the frogs can gather in if indeed they are still there in huge numbers to spawn in the spring. But it's looking at land in a different way and saying, right, I'll tell you what, we're going to take our foot off the gas. We are going to stop this slavery and abuse. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at us becoming something that is very different in our history of when it comes to the use of the land. We're going to be people, we're going to be a balm, a panacea. We're going to become a healing agent rather than something that just delivers more abuse. Now, you've been referred to as the guardian of the countryside. For people <laughs> listening today to the show, could you give them a few concrete ideas if they wanted to do something to help? What could they do in their own yards? So the first thing you do is make your garden untidy. Get lots and lots of rock piles in it, log piles, let the bushes grow up, You know, rip up your lawns, get wildflower seeds in there again, maybe change the shape of your garden, have areas that seasonally collect water, get rotten logs, bore holes in them for burrowing insects. Just you look at everything you never wanted to do and you do it because that what nature likes is chaos. Put a pond in your garden, put several ponds in your garden if it's big enough. Stop mowing the grass. Do things that are going to create living space that you can share with other creatures that they will come in and inhabit and that you will take great enjoyment from being in the company of. So if you've got flower-rich lawns, you're going to be filled, they're going to be filled with butterflies and bees. If you've got rock piles, then you get lizards sunning themselves in the late sunshine of a day. So gardens you can use. Small areas of land you can change in the same sort of way. If you consider that the settlers in North America, in the same way that settlers did in Europe, wanted everything to be neat and trim and tidy, and every rock they hit with a plough was a rock you were going to take out and throw away. Well, what you do is you start building rock piles again, and you cover them with finer subsoils, and you let the creatures that like to live in crevices come back to your land. You don't graze them bare with domestic livestock. You don't keep animals that are full of chemicals. You know, you look at the property you have and you say, actually, you know, I can change. I can live alongside other things. And it doesn't need to be a complete, you know, kind of Hollywood wives type setting that I have to exist in. It can be a good deal wider than that. And of course, you know, when you look at your country, it's amazing the nature you still have moving through the edges of urban settlements like coyotes and pumas and beavers. So maybe if you have a property that's slightly bigger, 
you look at these creatures again and where you've trapped before or you've eliminated their presence, you really sit down and think about whether that was an entirely wise idea. There are many different things you can do. Well, that is wonderful. Derek, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. The book is fantastic, and I highly recommend it to all of my listeners. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely speaking to you. I'd like to thank Derek Gow for joining us on Bird Hugger. You can find out more about Derek and his rewilding work by going to watervoles.com. You can find his book, Bringing Back the Beaver, and his latest book, Birds, Beasts, and Bedlam, by going to chelseagreen.com. His books are also available on Amazon.com. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.